I really broke rules. I got in a lot of trouble. And I don't recommend that, but at the same time, it's your story is your story. And you've got to, I think that you should always go to the edge and then a little bit beyond. You just want to go a little bit further out of the water than your feet touching the ground, and that's when you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. Michael Dixon is an award-winning speaker, author, and recognised authority of creativity. A musician by trade, gypsy by nature, fierce, non-conformist and prolific anti-perfectionist, he spends his time travelling the world working with senior leaders and teams of Fortune 500 and ASX 200 companies to unlock breakthrough creativity. Now, this conversation was pretty wide-ranging, from spiritual woo-woo to seeing the world around you as a canvas, from divergent thinking that put humans on the moon in the 60s to making magic from the mundane. Michael's infectious optimism and sense of possibility is contagious. And this was a high energy and dynamic exchange that covered many diverse topics. We explored the idea of ultimately being both alone in the world and also united as one humanity. And he reminded us that the common practice of dialing ourselves down is something we could all do a little less of. Creativity is such a broad construct, so we started by asking Michael how he would describe what he does. Create. I create. I find and form value uh, as much as I can everywhere and anywhere that I can. How does that differ to what everyone does in their lives as far as I I, I want to explore what does creativity mean are we born with it Mm -hmm. you know you said when you walked in uh, something that you do in your shows is you ask someone who says I don't have a creative bone Mm -hmm. in my body to do I don't know what you ask them to do Mm -hmm. but so a lot of people don't identify with being creative souls you are bang on the money chapter one in that book is called Uh, an identity crisis. Uh And I make the case for we don't have a creativity crisis despite a lot of research and and, uh, stuff that's come out in the last decade or so saying, oh, my God, we have a creativity crisis. We're losing our imagination, our ability to innovate. Yes, that may be true, but I think it's less about – you know, the capability in us, it's less about talent and it's more about mindset. And even under that, it's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and our own potential and our own self-expression. So really, if we want to get, we've got to address the story. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people get stuck in stories or narratives that don't serve them very well. Every right? every human walking the planet, I think. There you go. Yeah. 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 There's a, I'm trying to remember whose quote it is. There's a quote that's like, we're all born creative yeah. um, and you go to kinder and everyone is explosive, throwing paint around and mm-hmm. crayons, and then someone takes your crayons away. Or says, you've just and gone outside the lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't go outside the lines. Mm-hmm. And then and then you shut down creativity because it's this thing that's uncomfortable and you don't really know the rules for it. Mm. What's your view on that? Do you think everybody's born with a creative juices? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, and science tells us that. It's all... Uh, It's environmental. So we're born roughly with the same creative capacity. You might have heard of a a study by George Land. It's got quite a lot of – it's quoted a lot. It's very famous. So back in the 60s, he he pulled together the people that put us on the moon uh, with uh, JFK and the the – you know, space program, he found the boldest, brightest, most beautiful minds on the planet by devising the first ever divergent thinking test. Mm. That happened and he thought this would be interesting if I – I don't know, maybe I tried on a few kids. So we've got 1,500 uh, five-year-olds. They did the same test that these NASA astrophysicists and engineers and scientists did. 98% of those everyday kids were creative geniuses on par with the people that put us on the moon in the 60s. 
Is that in terms of when you say creative genius? Mm-hmm. Can we unpack that a bit? Is, that, is yep. that sort of in terms of problem solving? That's just, yeah, complex problem. Th- that's coming up with new ideas. That's seeing the world around you as a canvas mm. as opposed to, okay, uh, well, no, we can't do that because mm. I've been told that we can't mm-hmm. do that. So when you walked into this room and we know people can't see what we're looking at, but we did just take a quick video so we'll share it as <laughs> part of this as part of this app. Um, we showed you Mads's piano, which he's just had service. She's had all the white keys taken off and you opened the, do we call that a lid? Yeah. <laughs> What's a, a lid? A lid. Yep. Uh, on the piano, and you didn't you didn't stop for one second. I think so many people would have seen what? No white keys on the piano. Even if I'm a you know pianist, mm. I can't do that. You were more drawn to it than mm. if it had black and white keys together. I, I really want to unpack that. What I saw there, what I observed in you, was that you don't see barriers, mm. you see opportunities. It sounds kind of trite, but I saw it. That's a beautiful thing to say. Yeah, that is, uh, that's definitely what happened. I think that forms the essence of all of my work Yeah, is helping people reclaim that mm. way of seeing the world, which is what do you want to make of it? Mm. There's, it's not, oh, but where are the white keys? It's just like, oh, that's what I got. I want to know the difference between creativity. Well, there's, they're, they're good bedfellows, optimism and creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you go to Chapter 9, actually. Oh, you, you've no, got I'm an kidding. answer for everything. <laughs> Um, No, it is. Yeah, it's growth mindset, which you would know very, very uh, well. It's just seeing – it's a generative mindset. It's seeing everything as an opportunity and an invitation as opposed to, uh, you know, a closed door. Like everything's a question and an inquiry and a, I don't know, a jelly bean into the forest. You know, it's – Really is. What do you want to can make we, of the world? Can we go with that jelly bean into the forest? <laughs> yeah, what, let's go. With I'm that. not understanding that. <laughs> <I've never laughs> what is that? It, it might be really like high powered. So many, many order. jelly beans leading off into this dark forest, enchanting oh, like the bread crumbs, like the bread crumb, crunk crumbs. But yeah. jelly beans are well, they're better. More fun. Yeah. And, yeah, the ones from the chemist. Jumping back into this optimism and creativity, and do we need both? So I'd like to challenge that a little bit. Yeah. And that is that where we see great advancements and creative mm. progression in mm. human society or endeavor, it's often at a time of great constraint, mm-hmm. uh, where people are in a a bit of a tricky spot, a bit of a pickle. Mm. Think about COVID and living through the constraints of that in workforce and our day-to-day lives. And we've seen phenomenal creative explosions of people and this almost renaissance of reading and writing and sharing. And Mm. so, yeah, I'd like to understand from your point of view, where do you think that kind of friction point is with creativity Mm. to then create that catalyst of output? I think if we're changing the narrative of what of what our own creative potential, I think we also need to change the narrative of what creativity is mm. full stop. And I don't see it as a thing. I see it as everything. So it's pure energy. It's a life force. It is that, that driving momentum that pushes us through our life. And if that's, you know, not separate from who we are, then in constraint – can be super effective. Like, wow, okay, I've, I've got to say this in six words. You know, one of the greatest ever lines was like um, Hemingway. Or- yeah, and he, he, it was, uh, can you, his publisher challenged him to write something that would move him in six words. And if I recall correctly, it was um, baby shoes for sale, never worn. That's right. Mm. 
six words and it's like, oh, my God, what happened to that baby? It was mm, good. Was mm. it born, wasn't it? Did it die? Why do they need the money? Yeah, yeah, exactly, all those things. But that, you know, distilling it down into six words is gorgeous. Do you do that? Do you try and distill and contain? Because you're obviously florid with yeah, the amount of ideas you have. The more distillation, the more you can say with less is powerful. You know, not not the trite things and the catchphrases and stuff, but, yeah, like poetry. I mean, David White, to say a universe of, of experience in a, a, a phrase that lingers with you for a lifetime is... I think that's a worthy pursuit for mm. any kids listening out there and thinking about their uh, future career path. Be a poet Poetry. or philosopher. Yeah. Talking of future career paths or kids, I want to explore. I'm, I'm going to ask the psycho babble question because as I'm just sitting, do you with want your me to cue the music? Yeah, cue the music. Oh wow! I'm taking you back to little Michael because I want to know who little Michael was. Mm. Were you always this full of energy, creativity, joy to be, mm-hmm. optimism, growth? Always. I've also got yeah. questions about your marriage, but that's for part <laughs> yeah, two. Great. Let's go easy, that's honey. A, that's Let's a good. Go easy. They're both really good questions. Um, so we want to meet little Michael. Little Michael, he was uh, a dreamer mm. and a lover and a believer, and he was very fortunate that his mother was uh, just gave him the time and the space and the freedom and the love and the empowerment and the re- like the affirmation to trust and follow what fascinated me and what moved me and I just wouldn't be who I am without it. Mm. And I think that there's there's definitely as, you know, now I've got kids of my own, you've both got kids, so you you know that it's like, well, okay, you're a day old but there's already there's a soul in there, there's a personality in there. There's something that I'm not going to influence, it's there. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole lot that I can certainly have an influence on or, or create a, a container for. Look, if I didn't want to go to school because I wasn't feeling it, I didn't have to go to school. Who but was your mum? Deb Lang. What was she like? So she uh, was funny enough, she's a facilitator of a lot of the work that I do in a similar vein. She's very progressive in, in what she does. I would be reading books by Margaret Mead or Margaret Wheatley or Peter Sengi or whatever as a 16-year-old lying around the house. Um, so I, it, I was introduced to that stuff early uh, and I think obviously she, you know, she's doing non-verbal Communication and or in non-violent, what is it? You know that stuff. Um, yeah, non-violent communication. Yeah, NVC. All of that, and we done. I've been on retreats with her and my brother in Colorado in these log cabins with this beautiful woman called Margaret. Oh, what's her name? She's like, I think she's about seventy-eight at the time, and she honestly looked thirty-eight. And we'd sit in this half-moon chair. There was only twelve of us, and we'd talk like she'd she'd be she'd say, "Okay, what do you want to talk about?" To what about you? And you were 16? Uh, no, that one I was thinking I was about 27. But doing it when I was young, but old, the point I'm saying is we've just... You've grown up on She's it. driven you've a lot a of that. You've had a role model as... You've had the nature and nurture combination. Yeah. yeah. What about your dad? So dad worked hard and I think that's where I get my ethic, uh, work ethic from. And he's a very loyal, very honourable, ethical guy. So that uh, was instilled early as well. But what I love is um, that he, he, whether he wanted to be or not, he acted as the, um, uh, you know, the counterbalance, the counterweight. Yeah. Okay, you want me to be like that? Well, I'm not doing that, Dad. Oh, you want me to do that? Well, uh, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm going to rebel. Are they still married? Rock and roll. No, they're not. So Dad's since remarried. Mum now lives down in Geelong near us. Um, 
but it, he, it was actually the older I get, the more I can see. It's almost like, um, can I get a little spiritual woo-woo for a moment? Yeah, for that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in, um, in Hinduism or whatever, they talk about reincarnation. And I remember doing a, um, I was doing a month in silence in India in an ashram, a place called Oneness University. It was this big marble thing. And Did you need to be medicated for that? Oh, yeah. It was full on. And uh, so I did break my silence quite a few times, I'll be honest. But it, you know, it was just phenomenal. You do these different yogas every day. And um, one of them was they'd tell these scriptures. Anyway, long story short, it's, it's week four by now. So you are, you're in it. You're deep. You're hearing voices you've never heard before and they're coming from deep down in you. And, uh, and then we started talking about past lives and it talks about, okay, so when you die – you go and you can merge into this beautiful, warm, white light that is everything, oneness. And just before you're about to do that, it's like coming home, this oneness says, are you sure you did everything you needed to do in that life? Or is there something else maybe? Oh, yeah, I guess I probably – I didn't really forgive all that well in that one, did I? Maybe can I get one more go? And then this oneness says, sure, yeah, you can have one more go. All right, you can go back and uh, you, want to, you really want to get forgiveness. Yeah, I do. I really want to get forgiveness in this life before I come back home. As you're coming back down, you're like, shit, well, how am I going to learn this? And then people will come up, other souls, as they're returning to their bodies and go, oh, Mike, I'll help you out, man. You know what? I'll come back and I'll cheat on you mm-hmm. as a gift for you to learn forgiveness. Uh, and, and then you're coming down as a soul going, well, you would do that to me? Like for, for me. me, not to me. Yeah, you would do that for me. You would cheat for me. You would cheat and break up our marriage, and you would, you know, leave me in this pit of turmoil and despair, and I want to almost commit suicide. Thank you so much. I, how can I ever repay you? I love you. Then you come into your body. I can see that my father's played a role in a beautiful way, not that heavy, but in a sense of uh, I needed to feel like I could rebel. And that I could break the rules because this world is just trying not to let us think for ourselves and make ourselves and make the world what it could be. It's no, no, no. It's got to be this way. So I needed a safe character that I could that I could. But uh, you could push against, but he still against. had rules and yeah. edges. And yeah. your mum chose that in a partner, not for life, but for a period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they sound quite polarized in the way that they hundred percent polarized. The world. Mm. But I like that where you were going with that. Because it's as though they all came together just for me. Wow. Yeah. Are you a narcissist also? (laughs) (laughs) Only Tuesdays and Thursdays between three and four. (laughs) Same. Well, you've come to the right place today. (laughs) Clearly your mum had an open permission to allow you to be who you are Mm -hmm. and what you want to do and and push to the edges. And dad was like, actually, there's some rails here. Yeah. So do you think for most people you need permission, Mm. a lot of people wait for that permissioning to be able to be really creative and Mm. out there and bring Mm. that side of themselves to the world. Yeah, I mean, like I didn't – I really broke rules. I got in a lot of trouble, you know, kids at home. It was a bit naughty and I don't recommend that but at the same time it's – your story is your story and you've got to – I think that you should always go to the edge and then a little bit beyond. We love Bowie and, and, you know, all his – you just want to go a little bit further out of the water than your feet touching the ground and that's when you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. And I think that's how I've spent my entire life. It hasn't always worked and at the same time it's always worked because there's always a lesson in there somewhere. Um, But I think going back to you've got to trust yourself and you've got to at some point build a relationship with you 
and find the time or the space or have some rite of passage, passage experience or something that you can stop listening to the voices of the world and you can start listening to the voices in you because then you will always be okay. And that's this, it's one of the saddest, most beautiful things that I find in life is that essentially we're all utterly alone mm. with ourselves and yet we come in contact with other people we crave it and through COVID it's like oh my god connection I miss that but really we're alone with our head and our heart all day every day you can't get in here I want you in here but then sometimes I don't but then it's like ah. Ben Folds has a line in one of his songs he's a great lyricist and he says it takes a while to realize we're all alone behind our eyes yeah yeah. And I've said that to you, yeah, Sabina. You Early on when we were chatting, I said, um, there's this phrase that came from my mother's side of the family. I don't know if I completely agree with it. And it's love all, trust few, always paddle your own canoe. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you said, oh, that's so depressing. Yeah. I found it was sad to trust yeah. few because I want to trust it. I, I, I want to trust everyone. Mm. And I want to make sense of everyone's sort of flaws and fragilities because it's the human condition. Mm. So when I thought about you being raised, not literally on a diet of trust no one, but I, part of me wanted to, I, I want to lean in mm. even though I know that it can come at a cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, me I too. think it's, yeah, I, I think the trust thing's super important. So that's why I like, Nana, sorry, but I, I think it's, I don't completely agree with your phrasing. Yeah, but it. it's more, I do agree that you're on your own in the yeah. canoe. You are rowing your own boat. You're the one making choices, thinking your thoughts, and you really are the only person who can create those step changes in Mm -hmm. that narrative that you're telling yourself or how you're living your life. Yeah. And then again, in contrast to that or in complement to that is that, of course, we are all one. Mm. So we're alone, but then at the same time, you tune into you and I find you there. So something else that that. you and I have talked about, Mads, is this idea that I've kind of defined these two kinds of people in the world. One is those that believe that they really are on their own. They have to navigate Mm. everything. They have to um, problem solve. At the end of the day, they really only can lean and trust on themselves. And the other group of people knows that there is challenges and pressure points along the way but has a belief that other people are there to help. Mm. That you can ask for, you can mm-hmm. say, I'm a bit lost now or mm-hmm. I'm hurting now or I don't so know. So you can what be you're vulnerable doing. and you, ask that people for that help. Will, will give back to you. We, yeah, we talked a little bit about David White before. There's a great, um, I don't think it's in a poem, but I, and I've heard him share it a few times. He would say, um, you know, I always find it curious when people say there's no free lunches and at those very same people saying this at a conference where lining both sides of the room are literally free lunches. <laughs> And to think that you get anywhere in life on your own without anyone's help and, you know, when you see a baby, it's like, come on. You had help. Yeah. We all had help as a baby. We all had help and we're having help every single day. But some people are so fearful to ask for help Mm. because they'll be rejected, they'll Mm -hmm. be criticised, they'll be shut down, people will judge. That's the perception. Mm. Yeah. So I won't, I'll just do it myself. And you'd know too... um, the I know Brené Brown recently, her work on leadership and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and she was saying, okay, what's the number one way to build trust in a team between a leader and, and um, one of their team is to ask for help. Mm, yeah. So actually to say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. Mm. Can you give me a hand with this? Oh, my God, you mean I get to find purpose and meaning and value by contributing to you, oh, leader? Yes. Yes. And likewise in parenting. 100%. I mean, I say to my kids all the time, well, I've, and I use 
more four-letter words than the one I'm going to use now, but I'll say stuffed. I I know I'm stuffing you up all the time. They're 17 and 19. I can say I've I've stuffed you up, I'm stuffing you up, I will continue to stuff you up. Kids are meant to also at some point define themselves against you through their teenage years whereby they go on their own rite of passage away from you into the Mm. jungle, fight the dragon, Mm -hmm. come back somehow, you know, enlightened or informed. Yeah, there's a woman called Dr Maxine Therese. She lives actually in Geelong. She's got a a book out. uh, It's called Childosophy. She's also a psychologist but with a uh, philosophy background and she's written a whole, um, developed this whole model based on chakras and children's development and stuff like that. Beautiful, beautiful woman. And she talks about how, um, or many things, but one thing I love is that kids are a software update. They are, the moment that they come out, they're better than you. They're designed to be better than you. That, that's, that's how evolution works. So they're going to challenge you and they're going to know all your little pressure points and we're going to fail and mess it up. And They're the greatest teachers, the greatest mirrors. And that's it. It's, yeah. it's such a gift, isn't it? That, yeah. that, um, but then how it keeps going where you were that for your folks and then... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's time so for redemption. So your two kids, <laughs> yeah. given you have this big life, and yeah. big creative life and um, just across so many different phenomenal projects, what if one of your kids wants to be a, an accountant? I had that thought this morning, right, where... No offence to the accountants out there. Absolutely. They do a great job. Yeah, so I've... I, Especially I've, creative accounting. <laughs> I used to make this joke. I don't care what my kids do, you know. They can be anything at all with their life, a musician, a dancer, a poet, you know. <laughs> But not an accountant. Yeah, but just they can choose whatever they want to. Or I think I'd even say, um, you know, they can be any a bass player, a drummer, a guitarist, <laughs> yeah. you know. Anything from the Michael Brody. Brody's okay. <laughs> yeah. But um, I've, I definitely, even in the early days, Sonny, my oldest, tells me to stop singing all the time. He says, stop singing, Dad. And I'm like, no, you know, sit him down and give him this big half-hour lecture. You don't understand, Sonny. Singing is everything to me and to the world. And, it's and it to will be to you too, God damn it. You know, and then I, I literally thought this morning, hang on, it's all energy. And if I'm trying to push them to be creative, be they're going to go, well, I'm going to rally against whatever Dad likes. Yeah. So if I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to play and jam and I'll leave cool stuff here for you to muck around with, we'll see what happens. Um, that's going to be probably the way that I'll approach it from mm. here on in. Is, is the theory that if you have an extroverted parent, you'll often have introverted kids? So if you've got someone who over-indexes toward like being, you know, singing a lot or mm. be really out there, the kids will naturally incline toward the other side it, of that? No, I think that's too simplistic. Um, I was thinking more about not just parent to child but sibling relationships that mm. often when a sibling, when a firstborn has sort of carved out some kind of niche, whether it's the musicality or the mm. joker of the, or the sporty or whatever, then the next one comes along and thinks, well, that gig's taken. Like There's only so many job descriptions in the family unit. That one's gone so I'll start looking for another one. Mm. And in a way that's what parents are doing, uh, kids are doing with their parents but not not quite in the same way because we also yearn sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously to be mm. so much like our parents. Mm. So you were talking about the impact your mum had on mm. you, Mark, and how her way of just being, mm. not just allowing you to be, but you kind of saw it, you smelt it, you mm. tasted it, you saw her mm. being her full self, it mm-hmm. sounds, or at least being exploratory. I'm sure she fell down and got back up mm. again and travelled and looked for, mm. you know, things. But that gave you permission to do the same. So... I, there's no, you know, I always talk about the um, repeat repel mm. pendulum. Mm. 
in families and in generations and we either think I really like what I had and I like what I saw there and I'm going to repeat it or not for me, never again, no way, no how and repel. It's so good to hear you say that because, in again, in this book, but I framed as, you know, like there's people that, you know, if there's, there was these different kinds of creatives. There's the never was or there's the used to be. There's the kind of sorter, the love to be, the natural born and then the everyday. And the never was and used to be's are um, – they really, oh, I've got a creative bone in my body. But this could be in their childhood they were raised um, a sibling. Are they the creative one? You're the more left brain logical one. And that's reaffirmed yeah, by their parents Parents all the give time. labels. But I hadn't even considered it of just that's a choice that a, that a child would make because I think about my brother and obviously he tried his hand at a few things, guitar and um, keys and I think sax for a little bit, but it never really took and then he went off and um, did environmental management or whatever. He was a big sailor, so he was he represented Australia for a bit sailing. And then uh, through his, you know, way of life, he ended up starting a charity called One Girl, which um, oh, do education scholarships, yeah. yeah, in West Africa. And uh, and then through that, he came right back around to photography and filmmaking. And now he's a cinematographer. He works with me in a bunch of different ways, completely creatively fulfilled. And and but it was always like I I always had this un- assumption. I was like, I wonder if. Right, you so know, is he first? Who's older? I'm older. So you'd taken the gear. I had always wondered. I was like, I wonder is not you know without trying to sound arrogant at all, but like, do, do I cast a long shadow here? Is that hard for him to be mm. musical or this Compe- kind of creative? Compete. Well, a Compe- firstborn as well. Um, D- did you t- have you talked to him about that? Kind of, sort of, like in his own way. I mean, we're very close. Um, but I do think we've talked about it in that, yeah, I think we have actually many times. Is it possible that he went off to explore that, I guess, because he felt that that gig had been taken, but then he hankered? It sounds like 100%. he always, because who he is at his very core yeah. is this musical creative yeah. spirit as well. And I think who we all are at our very core yeah. is that. But not everyone is that and then wants to be at the front of the stage. So what with you, like yeah. where's that come from, that performance aspect? That's, I don't know, it's fun, you know, it's just love it. Is yeah. that your happy place? It's one of. I'm equally, you know, we're getting more and more nuanced. It's not just extrovert, introvert. We've all got, you know, we're on a spectrum and different point. I definitely need to return to my cave to find energy and stuff like that, but I'm very comfortable on a stage and I think what I like more, I don't like the adoration. I don't like necessarily people looking at me. What drives me is influencing energy. How you impact them. 100%. And taking people on, we mentioned rites of passage. If I can move a room and doing this from very young around a dinner table to then in pubs and clubs and being like, okay, here's a bunch of people I don't know and there might be 50 people there, there might be 500, there might be five. How can I get them to go from where they are now to where I want them to go? And that could be getting up and dancing or that could be interacting with each other or that could be dissolving a, a potential violent you know, situation, whatever it is. How can I hold that space and drive that space and use people all on the edge in such a way that we move from A to B or Z or wherever? And did you do that in your family unit? Yeah. Is that what you did around your dinner table yeah. since the beginning? Yeah, just driving. Just I just love. I'm so fascinated by the change of the energy, shift the, point. the shift, the dynamic. So when you see you, someone, oh. 
How did you impact people? I want to know about your family. So I can't, I'm, I'm hooked. I know. But whatever you were doing then, you're just doing now on a greater scale. You know, and you know, it's so... And the dynamic's the same. The dynamic's the same. And you know what else is the same? So I got really hurt, like we all have at different points. So I, in year four, still remember, uh, we had to move from Port Lincoln back to Adelaide to follow Dad's work. But I was going to be the lead in the play in year four. Uh-huh. And then that role got taken away from me. And I remember having to choose the person that would have to oh. take over, right? Oh. Stayed with me. And then I didn't, you know, a few other times I, I got laughed at and ridiculed for different things. And I was the lion in the Wizard of Oz in year eight in the year 12 production. And that was like, okay, I'm back. And a whole range of different things. But essentially, a few times I felt very unsafe when it came to creativity or self-expression. I even I largely call it self-expression as opposed to creativity. I like that. And then when I got out of school, I did this in school, even my last, my year 12, you know, they, they do the final thing. I was like the host where I'd had the grand piano and I was calling up and making fun of teachers, but oh, a bit wow. dangerous, but not, but this. And, and that was a school that I'd been expelled from and then returned to four years later to try to make up and prove to everyone I was a good guy. So there's a lot of stuff in there, right? I get into the rock and roll world, music. And I'm in jazz. That's why I went and studied jazz. So it's not quite cool. So I'm never just getting invited to the club. I'm never in the cool gang. You're the bridesmaid. So then it's like, you know what? I there's some there's some emotional stuff, right? There's some baggage. So I then start creating these events, and the whole intention is to make people feel safe, so that they can express themselves. So whether there's music and poetry and live body painting and film and all this stuff so that I can get people to this edge where they take one little step forward into their self-expression or so they feel safe enough to do that. And the whole driving force was so that I felt safe enough. Yeah, right. So I could reveal myself. And now I do this in organisations. I've been part of that shift point with you. We met at Space Series, Mm. a conference Mm -hmm. uh, that was held last year, and I jumped the stage and performed a beat inspired poem with your music backing it which just burst out of me like some sort of poltergeist incredible um but the way that you got a room full of really disparate people Mm. together and as you say there was a safety there Mm -hmm. when people were really out of their comfort zone but it felt comfortable Mm -hmm. um how do you know when people have got to that shift point Mm -hmm. what does that look like for you as the maestro you feel it it's it's such a feeling like i'm i love that we're only beginning to return to a trust in our intuition and the sensory, aesthetic, emotive intelligence in us. You know, the West has loved the science and the rationale, and that's great. We need that and it's important, but we've lost a lot of, you know, the Eastern ways of thinking and being in the world or even Indigenous ways of relating to the world, Uh, and that's coming back. And I think that you don't need to quantify necessarily in an equation that moment when someone has a transformative experience or when you can see that they've surrendered to their self-expression. You see it and you feel it and and you – it's so clear. And and even if you did uh, in in very simplistic terms, if that's the vibe, uh, the whites of their eyes. Yeah. You know, their skin, the colour comes back in their face. They're loose. They're joyful. Like I've had accountants in conferences, financial advisors get up on stage and, you know, when I'm playing and they start doing like what you did and they roll their sleeves up in their white shirt. And then they're, and then you can't get them off the mic, and they haven't done anything like that in 25 years or ever, and it took 30 minutes to get them there. 
And the other thing is it doesn't always happen, you know, our timelines aren't all aligned perfectly. So you were the, the poltergeist came out of you in the moment when mm. Mark did what he did. But for some people it's too confronting. But perhaps they go to bed that night and there's some small incremental mm. shift. Maybe 100%. they roll up one of their flannel jammy mm-hmm. sleeves and then the next day they don't have cornflakes, they have... 100%. Something. Yeah. And, and that's the biggest gift of all is Mads doing that. So the, the impact... My how I see my role in that, and I only feel like I'm serving this greater narrative, this greater impulse that wants humanity to rec- remember itself. So I, it's not about me at all. But m- the impact of that night is everyone seeing Mads, not seeing me. I get I'm long forgotten. It's oh my god, you remember Mads got up and did that thing. That's the story that You're they the carry conjured. with them. And that's part of the story I then tell myself about what's oh, capable. I'm amazing. Yes. Well, well, but partly that yeah. I did that thing and people bore witness to it and yeah. that's something, a moment shared and I can, you know, put that in my backpack 100%. and keep going. I'm getting shivers up my spine like I love this. And, you know, going back to what we are talking about, Sabina, with it's driven from a, a moment of vulnerability where I got hurt as a four-year-old or as a nine-year-old or as a whatever and somehow not just creating experiences to consistently heal myself repeatedly, but then to offer that healing for others. And now it's a profession where I actually make money out of it. So the, the conviction that I have is through my own embodied experience when it comes to this message of make the time. And, and yes, this life it might not be, you might not get there in this life or maybe, but just know it's possible if you trust and listen to that voice and show up and own you, mm. you know, and your experience and your history, you could end up one day making a living by healing yourself. By being you. By being you. Like to be sitting here with you two, right, in this gorgeous place, your place, we're jamming about all this stuff, we're coming out of a pandemic into a recession, it's nuts. And yet I feel just enlivened. Tell us about the book. The book Everyday Creative, A Dangerous Guide to Making Magic at Work is, uh, it's been a gift to me to write because it's helped me pull together um, how I feel about creativity and how I feel about self-expression and what a gift it's been to my own life and how it's afforded me a career and uh, a calling, you know, and I want to gift that to other people. I want to give them the opportunity to reclaim their relationship with creativity, to not make it something about the arts. It's got nothing to do with painting. It's got nothing to do with music and playing a violin. This is about you finding and redefining who you are every single day by applying yourself to, you know, curiously and wondrously with the world around you. Do you think we need to get you to play a little something on that piano with all black keys? Yeah. Um, so I could tell you of it, of something that I do with these with businesses and stuff. I'll yes. invite people yeah, up. With some musical backing. That's what's so beautiful about that. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Because so one of the questions that. I've got, and maybe we can take this into the black key piano, I feel like I'm about to sing a song. Yeah, do it. I'll cry while you sing it. <laughs> we want to know, Michael, who do you think does human well? I think our Indigenous brothers and sisters. We can learn a lot from them right now, or always. Um, I think they do human very well. And in my limited experience, but in lots of um, in my dealings with them in different ways and times, the way that they see themselves as custodians of country and that they, uh, they're just playing their role in serving existence and that 
they're less concerned about humanity because they see that they're a cog in a wider, bigger, more beautiful ecosystem. So we can learn a lot from them. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 